Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Adam Hoskins, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Come on, let's listen close. Let's prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear. Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us again today. Okay, let's begin with this moment. Have you ever had the experience where you cannot find something and you know it's there? I think every single one of us have had this experience with ourselves. It's usually with a roommate or a a spouse or a a sibling. So uh, I've shared this before. Maybe you've had this experience. I'm sitting in front of the fridge. I open the fridge. I'm looking for the mustard. I move everything. I cannot find the mustard. And so I yell in my home to my wife, Joanna, I can't find the mustard. She's probably upstairs. She's like, what are you yelling? Then I'm yelling, I need the mustard. She's like, I can't hear you. Probably we end up FaceTiming because that's how we do life in 2023. All that to say, I'm like, I cannot find the mustard. And she's like, John, it's in the fridge. And I'm like, no, it's not in the fridge. She's like, yes, it is in the fridge. I'm like, no, it's not in the fridge. She's like, have you moved things? I then, of course, get offended. Yes, I've moved everything. The world has been moved to find the mustard. I need the mustard. And she's like, if I come downstairs and I find the mustard, you you know the moment. It, It moves from conversation to debate to threat. Anyway, I said, I cannot find the mustard. And so I hear her coming down the stairs and she walks in the, you know, into the kitchen, into the environment, and she gives you sort of that bombastic side eye. You know what I'm talking about? So I'm just sitting there and she opens the fridge and she's like, are you, really? It's, and of course, it's literally in front of my face, right there. Everything else is moved and the mustard's right there. And she's like, seriously? I'm like, I'm so sorry. And she's like, seriously? And then, of course, leaves. I I think I have this unfortunate spiritual gift all the time of missing things. And I'm quite convinced that the spiritual gift of seeing what's not in front of you or not seeing what's in front of you is given to every single teenager. It must be genetics. This happens all the time, except uh, when my teenagers cry and I cannot find it, they tend not to move anything either. They just think it magically uh, will appear. This whole sermon today is about the mustard right in front of our faces. Uh, Either we can't see it, and it's right there, or we've seen it so much, actually, we just look beside it or beyond it, even though it's the thing we need. Or actually, for some of us, it's the thing we're not interested in. We actually don't want mustard. We think we want something else, but it's actually what we need. Uh, Today, every time in September, I stop, and I get up and I preach a sermon, which I keep preaching at least once or twice a year in some form, and... Every year, I'm asked, why do you do the same thing? And I'm like, well, lots of new people joined us over the summer or last year. And this is a significant moment where it becomes clear for you who've joined us to understand either what church you've joined or what church you're checking out. For us who belong to this church and also those who have just joined, this is our yearly checkup. This is our yearly weigh-in. This is the moment where we have an honest conversation with God, ourselves, and each other. How am I truly doing in my spiritual life? And the thing that we need to do that is the mustard. It's right in front of us, but we're so used to it. Either we, again, can't see it, we look by it, or we don't want it, but we all actually need this. So let me start where I did last week. Why does Sanctus Church exist? Why do we give, why do we do everything? Well, it's connected to our mission statement to glorify God. He's supreme. He's first, enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. 
And then every year in September, I ask this question, what do you mean by fully devoted? What does a fully devoted follower of Jesus look like? And of course, we're coming from different places. So some of you are seekers and skeptics, and, and you're not sure even what any of this means. Some of you are brand new Christians, so you have no starting point at all. Uh, others of us have been walking with Jesus for years, and we have some key ideas. Tons of you have moved into areas where our church is, and you've joined us from another church, and they use different words for what we mean here, and that causes confusion as we're trying to do this all together. So we have worked hard and we unashamedly repeat this so we will have a common script so we can keep walking together, moving together in the same direction with the same understanding so personally in this church we can follow the author and pioneer and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. Now, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We need to stop and ask again, what's a follower of Jesus, let alone fully devoted? And of course, many of you know this, the original name for us was not Christian. Christian actually was usually an insult. Uh, the phrase that was used all through the scriptures was disciple. Uh, disciple, of course, is a churchy word now. It's an ancient word. And again, many of us who have done church for so long don't understand the implications of this. So every year, I quote a guy named Ray Vanderland. Now, as I do this again, I'm going to focus, on, focus in on something I haven't done before. So this is what he writes. Like all rabbis of Jesus' day, Jesus had disciples. Incredibly common. The disciples' deepest desire was to follow their rabbi so closely that they'd start to think like the rabbi and act like the rabbi. Okay, pause, 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 pause. You've been taught, I've been taught, our whole culture screams at us that the most important thing you need to do in your life is think for yourself and act the way you think you should be. You do your own thinking. No one else should think for you. And by the way, life is fulfilled when you yourself act in a way that makes you feel free or good or fulfilled. And the Jewish understanding of religious formation is fundamentally against everything we take for granted in our culture. So ready? Let me do this again. They wanted to follow their rabbi so closely, they would start to think like him, not like yourself, and act like him, not what I want to think or act like. And then it keeps reading, they were devote followers, probably in their mid-teens, so a gifted student would approach a rabbi and say, may I follow you? In effect, the question is, do I have what it takes to be like you? And the rabbi would either say yes, and they'd become a disciple, or say no, and then they'd go and do a trade. So Jesus, this is, again, such hopeful truth we miss by just reading the scriptures on the surface. Jesus broke this pattern when he chose his own disciples. He asked his disciples to follow him. They knew without a doubt that the rabbi now already believed in them. Now a disciple again would follow the rabbi everywhere without knowing or asking where he was even going. Rarely they'd leave the rabbi's side because they were afraid they'd miss that amazing teachable moment. The disciples' deepest desire was to follow the rabbi so closely they'd think like him and they'd act like him. Or as Ray said in another place, they, they followed him so closely they wanted to be covered in his dust. Okay. So if we're going to follow Jesus so close, and if our ultimate desire is to think like Jesus and act like Jesus and be covered in the dust of Jesus, then the question we need to ask is, where can I find Jesus to know him, be like him, hear from him, be transformed by him in an ongoing way since supposedly he's risen from the dead and alive? And then this is a phrase we've used for years here at Sanctus. Are there guaranteed places of encounter where everyday ordinary people like us can actually encounter Jesus. 
So if I walk in certain environments, if I walk in certain places, if I do certain practices, can I always find Jesus? Is that a right expectation? Because remember, expectations can crush, destroy, or bring life. The answer, if you're a Christian, is yes. Though God is omnipresent, that is everywhere, according to the Bible, He comes very close and can be encountered. So this sets what I would call biblical, godly, appropriate expectation. And what I'm about to share, this truth transcends gender, age, education, transcends my preference, your preference on size of church or style of church. It goes beyond do I like the worship style or who's preaching today or who's in charge or how they dress. I can say, as I'm about to do, that this is true, this is guaranteed. And by the way, this changes everything. The size of church does not matter. Who's more gifted in this case does not matter. Uh, who has money, in this case, does not matter. How I'm feeling today, or what season of life I'm in, up, down, uh, boring, exciting, though important, does not change this truth. It's like if you're in a house, and this is true of many of our houses, and you have like 100 gorgeous cookbooks, or 50, or 20, or 10. You have all these cookbooks, and they're beautiful, and they're stunning, and they're, the photographs are amazing, and the food looks incredible, and they're beautifully designed, and they look amazing on your shelf. But if you do not ever use them, then it makes you feel good that you have them, but you never actually do the thing you're being invited into. It's like gym equipment. You can have it in your house, but if you do not use it, you might feel good because you see it, but it brings no change. This, again, is like the mustard. You need to reach in, see the mustard, and actually do it. So some of us have heard literally what I'm saying 20 times, but we never move beyond looking at the gym equipment, looking at the cookbooks, looking at the mustard. So the question is, I ask this all the time, if I want to actually begin to be or continue to be transformed, where do I walk with Jesus? And I say there's all these guaranteed places of encounter. The very first one is actually the good news of Jesus himself. It's when the gospel, the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Paul put it best in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It has the power, or it is the power of God for salvation for whoever believes, first Jews, then non-Jews. Now, the word power is where we get our word dynamite from. The gospel literally is alive. It has sheer, dynamic, life-giving power. It's where the Holy Spirit takes all the work of Jesus' work, past, present, future, and God the Father's calling, and puts it into a human being's life. So in other words, when someone in Alpha, when someone on a street corner, when someone over a coffee, when someone sharing over a barbecue shares about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the good news of Christ, to a person... The Spirit of God is hovering over that spot. No matter if the person says yes or no to Christ, when you share the good news, you're not alone. It is a guaranteed place of encounter because the power of God is in the room. The second guaranteed place of encountering God is Scripture. The Bible, the Scriptures, is a place where God always speaks. The Holy Spirit is always present, always overshadowing these words. Paul's summary of what Scripture is is found in 2 Timothy 
and 17. All scriptures God breathed, it's useful for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, training us in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit's always leading us and guiding us into God's truth. The holy faith passed down. Where is Jesus' teachings found? Where are all of God's stories found? Where are God's thoughts and wants and desires? Where are his revelations, his commands, his promises, his yeses and his noes? Where is the apostles' teaching found? In the Bible, in the scriptures, in the written word of God. This is God's inspired word. The Holy Spirit leads us and teaches us because he's the author of scripture. There might be 66 books in the scriptures and multiple, multiple authors, but behind them there's actually one author. The Holy Spirit leads us, speaks to us, and forms us in the Bible. That's why he's called the Spirit of Truth. There's unity and diversity. And again, he's always hovering over the scriptures. You cannot divorce the written word of God from the living word spirit. And by the way, you can't understand the Bible without its author. When you open the Bible, God speaks. It's guaranteed. The third place is spiritual disciplines. We talk about this all the time. Spiritual disciplines are the on, only ongoing place of transformation after you meet God through Jesus. Holy habits keep our relationship healthy, right, balanced after you said yes. Jesus used these to walk with God the Father. So to be like Jesus, we must walk like Jesus did and share in his lifestyle. And they provide this dynamic experience. See, positionally, upstairs, statically right now, you're a child of God, you're predestined, you're called, you're loved, you're forgiven. That's all true. And that's a static, unmovable truth. But it's also a dynamic relationship. So things like simplicity, confessing your sins to each other, praying, fasting, solitude, silence, studying God's word, there's so many. You encounter him because he's among us and within you if you're a Christian. Now, the fourth area we spend a lot of time in this church talking about is spiritual gifts. Why is this a guaranteed place of encounter? Well, spiritual gifts are the only ongoing guaranteed place of having given power to do God's work from. Jesus used them, and since we're the body of Christ, we're called together to use the same gifts to imitate and act like Jesus and be near Him. Gifts are related to doing. The fruit of the Spirit is about character. You and we will not have all 21 gifts personally, but we're all called individually to have the fruit of the Spirit. I share this all the time. What you're born with, natural gifts, you, you could be born athletic and, or born brilliant or do math really well, or you can learn things, amazing things like computer science or fill in the blank. Natural and learned things are good and amazing and can be used for God's kingdom, but you do not need the Holy Spirit to do those things. They're not guaranteed places of encounter and power. Scripture is clear, though. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, All these spiritual gifts are the work of the one and same Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit distributes them to each one just as He determines. So the Holy Spirit's presence is guaranteed every time we use our God-given spiritual gifts because they're God-given places of service, and He needs to be in the room for the gas. Like, He's the electricity for the electric car, or He's the gas for the, the, the car. In other words, if you don't have Him, the gifts aren't even there. See, when you use a spiritual gift, you're accessing someone and someone's power that's not you, but still you're working with him. It's guaranteed. Another guaranteed place of encounter is gathered worship. When we sing in community, we enter into God's holy presence. We join with all the angels. We enter actually into the environment where everyone who is loyal to Christ, 
who's died is already there. My great-grandmother is there. My grandparents are there. Abraham's there. Moses is there. David's there. Fill in the blank. Paul and Timothy and Titus and Peter. And they, we walk into an environment, actually, that if we didn't have Jesus' covering, we would die. We're in that presence, if you're in a gathered site right now, right now. And let me ask this question. I'm going to talk about this a lot more uh, today than I have in the past. Do you actually say that's true before you come to gathered worship? Right now, this is happening. Whether you feel it or not, see it or not, God is among us, and, and we're in God's holy place. And the Bible teaches this, Psalm 22. God literally inhabits, sits among, sits in the praises of his people. James says, if you draw near to God, he draws near to you. Paul actually says that the Christian community is the literal temple of God. What did Jesus say in Matthew 18? Where two or three gather in my name, I am what? With them. That's not metaphor. That's not some fake promise. He's actually in the room. He's there by his spirit. So gathered worship is a guaranteed place of encounter. Another place is communion. Now, in this church, we don't believe Jesus is actually in the bread and the wine or the juice. But we also don't believe this is just remembering something that happened before. Uh, churches call this communion or the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or the Lord's Table. Of course, it is a place of remembrance. It's where we stop and it says in 1 Corinthians 11, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yes, we remember, we reflect on his death, his resurrection. We're thankful. We remember all that, truth, all that incredible truth. But it's not just remembrance. It's communion. Think about what the word means to commune. The commune means you actually are with others and with him. Right from the beginning of Scripture, it's not good that we're alone. We're not called to be alone. And, and this meal, no matter how it's served, is hosted by Jesus himself. The Jews and bread are not Jesus. They don't turn into anything. They're symbols that focus our attention. Yes, yes, yes. But let me tell you, when you come up in a service to receive communion at a table or it's past, in that moment, Jesus is the one truly serving you. It's a place of forgiveness. It's a place where he can be encountered. And like I share every year, it's also a reminder that Jesus loves eating with sinners, like us. Communion is a profound place of encounter. Then there's, of course, water baptism. Now, we don't believe that you're saved through baptism or you get the Holy Spirit through baptism. No, but we do believe Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is very close and very present every single time someone goes public with their faith. We say this all the time. Uh, getting baptized, I say this is, this is my wedding ring. I've done this a thousand times, right? This is my wedding ring. Uh, and, and this is a public declaration that I'm off the market and I belong to my wife, Joanna, and she belongs to me. It's a public demonstration of an inward thing that we've already committed to. And we put this on or connected to the vows. So when someone's baptized, they're making vows. Trust me, the groom is in the room when the vows are being said. So every time you're sitting in a service and you're watching someone getting baptized or you finally decided to obey Jesus and get baptized, he's right there. And of course he is, because what did he say to Matthew 28? Uh, go and make disciples of all ethnic groups, all nations, baptizing them in the name of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now the last guaranteed place of encounter in Scripture is suffering for the sake of the gospel, the gospel, not just suffering in general, suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now, let me bring clarity to this call. Suffering has to be viewed on a sliding scale. 
again, this week or the last month, I've seen this online. So many Christians in the West say, oh my goodness, we're, all we do is complain here. We're not really persecuted. We're not suffering like the rest of the church. There's no persecution here. We're not suffering here. Well, actually, that's not true. That's why we need to understand Christian suffering for the gospel, again, on a sliding scale. Now, here's the truth. One out of eight Christians, as I'm literally recording this message, is under direct persecution worldwide. Uh, they are in real trouble. Even in the last month, I have witnessed and watched multiple churches in one province, for example, in India, be burned to the ground. Two or 300 Christians on the run, sleeping outdoors, uh, pastors assaulted. Like, this is real. Actually, there is more persecution against the church today than there has ever been in 2,000 years. So that's true. That's real suffering for the gospel. And it's a guaranteed place of encounter, as we'll see. But actually, Open Doors, who is a global organization that evaluates Christian suffering, has the best definition, in my opinion, of persecution. Persecution or suffering is any hostility experienced as a result of one's identification with Jesus. This includes hostile attitudes, words, and actions Words, attitudes, and actions towards Christians. So, when you declare Jesus is the only way to heaven, when you say God is the creator and has the final say in sexuality, when you choose not to lie or cheat and your boss has told you to do it, and you lose access to a job, um, that's persecution on a sliding scale. Smaller. This does not apply to our political views. <laughs> this does not apply when you're a jerk. This does not apply when you suffer because you do something wrong, like cheating in your taxes, but when you declare there's a heaven and a hell, when you gently declare with certainty that sincerity does not make you okay with God and does not actually change your life, when you stand up for the life of the unborn and the life of the elderly, when you actually declare that medical-assisted suicide is murder, when you stand up for widows and orphans and immigrants in Jesus' name, and you rejected its small p persecution. So let me say this again. As orthodox, confessional, historic, biblically informed Christians, we will, I, I preach this all the time, we will always make the right and the left angry at the same time because actually we belong to a different kingdom. We're pro-life and pro-immigrant in Jesus' name. We actually believe in society and laws, but we also care for the marginalized. We boldly declare that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to heaven, and yet we also would defend the civic right for anyone to believe anything they want. We as Christians actually know that God has asked us to conform ourselves to his understanding of sexuality and sexual life, but we at the same time will resist any violence in any form against anyone of any sexual orientation. Those categories don't fit in the world, and it really bothers the left and the right. But we're like, but we're with Jesus. So now, most of us won't be beaten. Most of us, our church buildings won't be burned down. But we are in a moment in Canada where we have moved from apathy, you choose whatever you want, we're glad for you, to hostility. The scriptures, Jesus, and the claims of the Christian faith feel dangerous, inappropriate, un-Canadian. No matter. Not if, but when this happens to you by a boss, or a friend, or a family member, or online, don't hate that person, but pray for your enemies and rejoice. Why? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say, lie, 
say all kinds of evil things against you. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, suffering is worship, not a place to advance your rights. Here's the question. Are you willing to suffer in small and large ways for the sake of the kingdom? Have you made the connection between worship, suffering, and Jesus' unique presence? I mean, Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection and participate in His sufferings. So when we suffer for the sake of the kingdom of God, we actually will encounter Him. He is present. And by the way, I'm just going to go off script here for a minute too. I need, I'd be remiss if I didn't do this. He's also uniquely present when we deny ourselves. See, our whole culture tells us that we will find life when we believe in ourselves, love ourselves, look inside of us, do inward journeys, right? Manifest, fill in all the things. Listen, Jesus says we are called to crucify our flesh, deny who we are and what we want to be when he says no to those things. And when we actually say no to things that we want to do, that we feel we should do or, or actually feel we are, and we say no for Jesus because we love him more than these other loves, in that moment of suffering, it's worship and Jesus is close. So the gospel, scripture, spiritual discipline, spiritual gifts, worship, communion, baptism, suffering for Jesus, salvation is not earned by these things. Uh, they, they don't get God's attention more but they actually strengthen and give courage and the Holy Spirit is present and the Holy Spirit takes us in those environments to Jesus. Jesus takes us to the Father and we, of course, get to be like Jesus. Now, there's one thing, I say it all the time and a lot of people zone out, so actually find the mustard, find the mustard in the fridge. Our personal holiness matters. The power and the person you're meeting in those environments can be grieved. That's why multiple Christians can continually walk into these environments and never be changed. Paul put it best in Ephesians 4.30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption or to the day of redemption. So when we grieve the Holy Spirit, in other words, we just don't repent, we don't care. Listen, when we grieve the Spirit, the spiritual gifts don't disappear, but their power dims. When we grieve the Holy Spirit and we go to use spiritual disciplines or practices, they become powerless to transform because actually we're grieving the one we want to go hear and listen to. In other words, don't grieve the one that you're trying to meet as you ring the doorbell to walk into that environment. Okay, so let me just do this real quick. We know what a disciple is. We know actually how to find our rabbi now in these environments. And so the question again is, how does this function on the ground? And so years ago, uh, we took a lot of time to actually outline what discipleship looks like on the ground in this church community. So I'm going to go through this language again. We, we need to hear this and move forward together, one understanding, one common script, so we can become, of course, more fully devoted. Now, this is not just about common language, but it's actually also a way that I can genuinely evaluate myself. Am I a disciple? Am I not a disciple? If I, am on a, if I am a disciple, where am I on this journey? Where was I last September? Where was I last January? Where am I now? And make the needed connection. What we're going to talk about, these, we call them discipleship dimensions here, are based on all the guaranteed places of encounter. So one is based on the other. So we say there are five discipleship dimensions that make us more fully devoted. 
The first one, well, let me just go to the one. Celebrate big, connect small, walk with Jesus, share the work, engage in mission. That's how we talk here. Celebrate big. We believe in celebrating God together in big gatherings. We see this right in the early church movement. We talked this about last week in Mission and Vision. Uh, they met in the temple courts. There was three, four, five thousand plus people at once gathering right within the first you know, year of the church. So like the early church, we rally, we, we are drawn to large gatherings where we hear preaching and teaching and we sing together and we pray together and we give together, we take communion together, we witness baptisms together, we serve in all sorts of ways, we pass on the faith to the next generation. God has called us to gather. Gathering is not optional. It is what we are. And why is it important? If you're going through a difficult season, an amazing season, if you're bored, we are called to celebrate the bigness and the goodness of our God regardless of circumstance. This is how we cling to promises in tough times. We thank Him for answered prayer. We celebrate big. Uh, Jesus is always with us, with us when we gather. Second one is connect small. It's sort of the other side of the coin of celebrate big. We see this again in Acts 2.46. They met together in the temple courts. There's the big gathering. They broke bread in their homes. A small gathering. They did life together. They ate together. They shared. They helped. They had close relationships with each other. The same is true for us at Sanctus. We believe in connecting small is equally as important as celebrating big. It's the, the primary place we do this is connect groups, a place where someone knows where you are spiritually. When tough things happen, they're there for you. It's about authentic relationships. You unpack your walk with Jesus. How is the sermon affecting your life? You trust others to do the same. You pray, you eat, you learn, you support, you care. And again, we do this because Jesus did this. Jesus spent so much of his time just with 12 people. Now, um, let me just take a moment and pause and just, again, either clarify uh, or give direction about this. Because, of course, during COVID, uh, some of us, actually many of us were along, many of us were in the system where we were in connect groups, and then suddenly, of course, we weren't in connect groups because of COVID. So a few things. Number one, there is Alpha, where that's a great expression of connect groups, where you're actually sitting with others and learning and engaging uh, about the Christian faith. And seekers and skeptics do this. is amazing. Connect groups, though, can take many forms beyond Alpha. So it can be a classic connect group where you're in a house and you're, you've listened to the sermon, you're talking through stuff. Sure. It can be two or three of you gathering intentionally to pray with each other, talk to each other, maybe talk through the sermon together. Uh, lots of us uh, in our church are in different ages and stages. So some of us, uh, this is not me so much anymore, we've got young kids and it's like chaos. And so I know all sorts of uh, groups have got together, those who have children, those who don't. And what they tend to do is one group will meet one week and the rest are with the kids and vice versa. All we're saying to you is if you're gathering in a smaller way to pray with each other, find out where someone is spiritually, read scripture together, connect to the sermon in an intentional way and all sorts of other things, just let us know you're doing it. That's actually the thing we need to know because actually there are so many people in small environments doing good things and we don't even know. And also we need to encourage you to do this again. In a church of thousands, we still need to meet together in small ways. So you've got connect big, you've got connect small, and then you've got walk with Jesus. Uh, we can see the early church, of course, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So we as a church can provide connect groups and teaching and worship and serving opportunities, but we cannot ever force you to spend time with Jesus. We have to take personal responsibility for our own walk with Christ. So 
Like I said, we believe in spiritual disciplines like reading scripture or prayer or meditation or solitude. These are guaranteed places, right? So the ongoing rhythm between you and Jesus is key. Reading your Bible, praying, listening like Jesus did to the Father. When you regularly walk with Jesus through prioritized time, it will change your life because he'll be there. Now, it's not always amazing and drastic and oh my goodness, but it's real. We want to encourage you to walk with Jesus personally. Why? Because if you notice, Jesus spent a lot of time walking personally with his Father. So we gather big, Jesus did that. We gather small, Jesus did that. Uh, We spend time alone with God, Jesus did that. Oh, and then we share the work. Again, like I said, let me say this again, we know the scriptures teach that every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. And since these are given by the Spirit to you, we are commanded to use them. You'll get immense joy from this. We've always seen this burnout rates drop in ministry as much of the time because you start accessing a power that's beyond natural or acquired gifts. And also this avoids and breaks down comparison. I don't have to be like you. You don't have to be like me. We get joyful when we serve God. This is not about independence or dependence. It's interdependence. Why do we do this? Well, because Jesus actually used spiritual gifts to change the world, to do ministry from. And so we have to also choose to serve. And we serve in our gifts. And also, of course, there are times when we have to serve beyond our gifts. And that just becomes duty and discipline because we love Jesus. The last one is engage in mission. Uh, what we see in Jesus' life and in the early church's life is like outlandish generosity, actually. And we talk about engaging mission in two directions. We talk about it with the gospel, and we talk about it with finances. Uh, we're called to take the gospel, the good news, the life, death, and resurrection story, right, to our families, workplaces, neighborhoods, and friends. We're called to give time and money also to invest in things that last. Generosity is always the mark of a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Generosity is always the mark of a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And so sharing the gospel and giving the good news by inviting someone to Alpha or just sitting over a beer and sharing, oh my goodness, let me tell you how Jesus changed my life or sitting with that neighbor or friend and building a relationship in time, sharing how, how the life and death and resurrection of Jesus has changed you. That is this dynamic, this environment. But so is giving. And actually, I know sometimes in church it's weird to talk about giving, but actually its heart is about loving God and loving each other. And so we're called to give regularly, unashamedly, by the way, to our local church. And then the reason why we have local and global partners is because we realize we're not the only thing that God cares about. And so when you give here, so we get to do what we're called to do here under God's direction, we get to bless local communities and global communities. Engaging in mission... Through Jesus, you'll begin to love people you've never loved before. Giving financially makes sure that materialism and also uh, fear doesn't win your heart. And sharing the good news and partnering local and globally, just what we're called to do. Now, those are the dimensions. Don't misunderstand what I just went through. You can almost take this wrong and go, well, here's my checklist. And like, click, 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 click. But number one, this is love that moves to action. It's about love. And this is more like a continuum. Now, I understand, and and we, of course, all understand, that you can't do all of these all the time at every moment. But let me give two 
very simple, direct ways we can respond to this. Whether we've heard this, literally what I've done for 20 years, or this is the first time you're hearing it. One, and if I can especially ask all of you who've been part of this church for a long time, I'm now begging your attention. Poor Perry, Pickering, Bowmanville, right? Ajax, some of you online, you've been here for a while. So we're the ones who've been for the long run. And we, much of the time, are called to set the trend of what is and what's not. Can I ask our whole church to choose to change our expectations again? Because we did in the past, and I think we've lost it now. When you're about to take communion, when you're about to witness a baptism or you're finally about to obey, when you're gathering and you're singing to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, when you're serving and releasing prayer and using discernment or faith or miracles, when you're greeting at that door or making coffee using that gift of serving, when actually you are teaching that kid in Sanctus Kids or in a junior high context, that Bible story, when two or three of you are gathering, talking about the sermon and praying in that Starbucks, do you actually say out loud or just before that, this is a guaranteed place of meeting? Again, this does not mean every time that we walk into these environments, it's so life-changing and overwhelming and so powerful and emotional. Gabriel showed up and fire from heaven. No, no, no. But here's the question. Do you say, I am about to encounter the living God? No matter who's preaching, no matter what the results are, no matter who's leading worship, no matter, I feel him, he's here. This, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. This is not about us getting hyped up again post-COVID to get back into church. It's not about hype. It's not even about being excited sometimes. It's about expectation. I remember when I first taught this in our church, the spiritual dynamic of our church changed overnight because people started coming to services and realized, like really realized, that God inhabits the praises of the people, really realized Jesus was about to serve them communion. Like It changed. So here's my encouragement. Can you start as you're driving to church and preparing to go serve somewhere, go to connect group? Just say out loud, I'm about to encounter the living God. And start actually changing the atmosphere of our church, the expectation of our church, to something that is guaranteed. Because if we all come expectant, even though we're tired, all come expectant, even though we're distracted, all come expectant, even though we had a bad or great week last week, when we come expectant, the atmosphere of faith in the truest sense does change. Here's the other thing. Commit to at least two of these discipleship dimensions this year and make them real, calendarized, and a priority. Like really give your life to them and walk with Jesus in them and walk with each other in them. If our whole church did that, not only with expectation changing, there would be a massive shift. So Lord, uh, would you lead our friends across the church who don't know you yet? to encounter you, to become a disciple. And for we who are disciples, uh, begin to change our expectations. And now, Father and Son, send the Spirit and speak to us directly right now about the two or three areas you are inviting and probably commanding us to actually participate in. Would you speak and then would we be quick to obey? This is what we pray in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Sanctus Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. 
There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when other episodes releases. I hope you were encouraged by what you heard today. God bless and have a great week.